Good to be back with you in the Word this afternoon and back with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As most of you know, we're looking at some gleanings from Isaiah, some, some thoughts from Isaiah. And we're actually in part two of a message we began this morning, so if you kind of update our minds, if you go back for a minute to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to reread verse 9, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. Verse 9, O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. And in today's sessions, we're looking at the call, first of all, to Israel in a nation that had forsaken God, that had turned to the gods of the other nations and their power and so on, to draw their hearts back to God, to behold your God, to consider, to gaze at your God. And in chapters 40 through 48, you have this big proclamation of God revealing himself, showing what they have in him if they only look and they won't need what they're looking to in the world. And so in this great proclamation of God, we've looked at the pastoral, pastoral heart of God, the power of God, the presence of God with his people, and the proof of God that we can be sure he's the real God. And we've considered things like that and beholding our God. And as we said, we're starting these all with the letter P simply to help you remember but we want to cover the highlights, if time permits, through chapter 48. And so that brings us to where we left off this morning, to Isaiah chapter 42. Another excerpt of the Lord himself here. And as we've been noticing, uh, our God turns out to be the same characteristics of the Lord Jesus, for he is the Lord, he is God, whom we know now. But we get to Isaiah chapter 42, and in the four, first four verses, one through four, you have a preview of God's servant. God has, is sending a special servant to save someday to earth. At this time, it would be someday. And he gives a preview of his servant. You look here at verse one, how it starts in Isaiah 42, one. Behold my servant. I just want to stop there for a minute. Behold my servant. That technical phrase, behold my servant, is used only two times in the book of Isaiah. The word servant is used a lot, but behold my servant is only used two times. Once here in Isaiah 42, and as we'll read in a minute, it will have more to do with the character of his servant. What is his servant like? What is God like when he sends his servant? The character of God's servant. The second time you will come across that phrase will be that famous section beginning in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold my servant, which we hope to look at tomorrow, Lord willing. Behold my servant. And there it will not be the character so much of God's servant, but the cross of God's servant, the sufferings of Messiah. Uh, behold my servant, drawing you first to the character of his servant and then to the cross, his suffering for sin. But we're still in chapter 42, where we have a preview of God's servant and the character of his servant. So let's read again in verse 1. 
Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment or justice or righteousness to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up his nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he hath set judgment in the earth, and the owls shall wait for his law. God wanting us to consider his servant. God is going to reveal himself in flesh someday, and what is this God like? He'll take on the form of a servant. And according to the New Testament, uh, this prophecy is an exact prophecy and fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you want to just keep something here in Isaiah 42 and look what the New Testament says about this, if you'll go to Matthew chapter 12, please. Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, and uh, looking here in context at verse 14, Matthew 12 and verse 14, then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles." He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. And so is the Lord Jesus, and isn't that what he became? The one who was very God, he took on flesh, and Philippians 2, 7 says he humbled himself and was made, in the, and he took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He came doing God's will, not his own. Not my will, but thine be done. And he did it all the time, even to the obedience of the death of the cross. And the very character of him, here the Pharisees are trying to destroy them. And here's the Son of God incarnate, who just with a word could have called for angels, and they could have destroyed those Pharisees instantly. What does he do in verse 15? He withdrew himself. He just withdrew himself from the, the, the tense situation. No judgment yet that will come in the future. He withdrew himself. You see, he, he's bringing justice and righteousness to the Gentiles. And then it goes on to say, as we've already read, uh, that a bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax he won't quench. You look at the character of the Lord Jesus. He, he didn't lift up his voice in protest like we see rebels and some political activists do today. He didn't say, down with Caesar, overthrow the government, it's corrupt, there's a better way. He never did things like that. In fact, when they crucified him, as a lamb is dumb or silent before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth, you know, Isaiah 53, 6. 
And Pilate said, why aren't you answering me? One who didn't lift up his voice, he was doing the will of the Father. A bruised reed, rather than just uprooting it and throwing it out, he would restore. A smoking flax, you know, that would have be dim and because of the dirt and soot, he, he, he would restore that. There's Peter, huh, who denied him three times. He didn't break that reed. He didn't quench that light. He restored Peter back to tremendous use uh, after the resurrection. And, and so the very character of God's servant is not, was not destructive. He came in meekness. He, he came, uh, you remember his disciples in uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, out of racial prejudice, uh, said to call down fire and destroy these Samaritans like Elijah used to call down fire from heaven. He said, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Luke 9, 56. And so the character of God in the flesh will not be the character of a sword. Will not be the character of a sword in his ministry on earth. It, it, it was a Messiah who was meek and out for mankind would eventually provide a gospel for them. And so we have the character, the preview of God's servant, which the Lord Jesus matched in his life, uh, and God's soul was delighted in him. Someone who would not lift up his voice. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now having said that, if you go back to Isaiah, if you go back to Isaiah, we're just drawing some of these out to kind of whet your further meditation. We've had a preview of God's servant fulfilled in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I, I might remind you, as we've already read here, if you look at verse 4 again of chapter 42, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till Till, that's a timing word. He has set judgment in the earth. There's a second coming. There was first this spiritual salvation we've been talking about. We need to be saved from our sins. We deserve judgment. But someday he will judge the earth. He'll judge the nations. And, and so in the second coming, there'll be a sword. In the first coming, he took the sword. He suffered the meek and lowly Christ. So a preview of God's servant. But now if we'll move on and beholding our God and to chapter 43. And in chapter 43, uh, one of the things that will come across in this chapter is the purpose of God's people. The purpose of God's people. It's always good to understand why you're here, why you're the children of God. What's our purpose? And God will go on to talk about the purpose of God's people here. So in chapter 43 now of Isaiah... If you will break in here at verse uh, 10. Verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God, for neither shall there be any after me. I, even I, am the Lord, Jehovah, and beside me there is no Savior. Now we notice in verse 10, first of all said to Israel, ye are my witnesses. And now we start to get the calling of God's people Israel. In a polytheistic society of gods and goddesses and pagan darkness, God chose Israel to bear witness to the one true God, none before him, none after him, the creator God. And in their monotheistic belief, they were to draw the world's attention. On occasion, it, it worked by the grace of God that there is only one God, the Creator God. Ye are my witnesses, there's none beside me. Look, look at verse 12. Verse 12. I have declared 
and have saved. I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. And so we have Israel's, one of their main calling is the revelation of the one true God. You know, even in their Sabbath day and keeping the law and keeping Saturday not to work and do certain work on Saturday, that was all part of their witness to the one true God. Again, uh, keeping your hand here, let's just see how that worked on the Sabbath day. If you go back to Exodus chapter 31, please. Let's go to Exodus 31. A little more history on this. Their very holy day of keeping Saturday was meant to be a witness of this one true God. Here's how it worked here, according to God, in Exodus 31. And uh, verse 12, Exodus 31 and verse 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths shall ye keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. So the keeping of the Sabbaths would turn out to be a sign so they would know that it was God who set them apart. Well, verse 14. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. It was a very serious thing. Now verse 15. Six days work may be done, but in the seventh it is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for perpetual covenant. Verse 17. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So that by Israel keeping the seventh day and resting, people would say, well, why are you resting? Well, the God, our God, who revealed himself to us, he, he made the earth in six days. In the Jewish work week, for in six days he made heaven and earth. That's how we got here. There's a one true God, the creator of all things, and since it was very good and there was no more to do after six days, he rested on the seventh day. And we're resting on the seventh day. So their very resting on the Sabbath was meant to convey to the world and to convey to their own hearts that the true God is the creator God. And that creation was done in six days and he rested. And so they are the witnesses to God in many ways, one of the ways being the very sign of the Sabbath. Now in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, we too, the church, are called to be witnesses, the purpose of the people of God. And it is true, we bear witness to God. But we go a step beyond Israel. They were witnesses of Jehovah, the creator, the one true God. We are called to be witnesses, but we witness to something that Israel as a whole does not witness to because of their rejection. It was the Lord Jesus, right before his ascension, that said to his disciples in Acts 1.8, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. We witness not only to Jehovah the creator, we witness to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a unique calling of the church. You know, as the church is told in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful, who hath called you unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. 
our Lord. And we bear witness to him. And we too have a sign. And when we do that sign, it won't point to the creator, though Christ is the creator. It won't point to God's creation. Israel has done that to some degree by the grace of God. They've done it effectively. Okay? But when we go to a dimension that they've rejected, what is our sign? It's not the Sabbath. That was to the children of Israel. The church is told about the, the bread huh, that we break and the cup that we drink, those symbols of the new covenant. And it bears witness to something, doesn't it? Well, listen to what it bears witness to in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. We point to a Savior who has died for our sins, who propitiated God with his precious blood. Israel points to the existence of Creator God. Thank God for that. That's foundational. Must come first. But we point to a Savior who died, and our sign is not the Sabbath. It's the bread and the cup which we break and which we drink. And so we too are called to be witnesses, but in a more fuller way that God now has been manifest in the flesh and died for our sins. The purpose of the people of God to bear witness to this great God now, having said that, if you go back to chapter uh, 43, a couple other verses here. In the purpose of the people of God, you, you look here at verse 7, Isaiah 43 and verse 7. Everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. And now we start to learn something. That we're, the people are created for the glory of God, to manifest him. In everyday English, to, to make him look good, to show his true honor and worth would be a better way to put it. Huh? Created for the glory of God. Does that concern us, the church? How about Ephesians 3.21? Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. We're here to manifest through Christ Jesus the glory of God and the fullness of his grace that we've been hearing about. And so created for his glory. It's good to know why you're here, not for yourself, for his glory. Also in this chapter, another purpose is revealed. If you go down to verse 21, chapter 43 of Isaiah, and verse 21. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Formed for himself. They're for God's delight and pleasure. They shall show forth my praise. In a world that didn't, that was taken up with gods and goddesses, Israel would give the two true praises to God. This verse might sound a little familiar, for Peter quotes part of it to the church in 1 Peter 2.9. He tells us that we are a chosen generation, a, 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 a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In a world that is not thankful, Romans 1.21, that doesn't thank or acknowledge God, neither do they glorify God. Here's a redeemed people that stand out from everybody else. We praise him and thank him for who he is and what he did, showing forth his praises. The purpose of God's people as we get to know this God is to be witnesses unto him. And not only the existence of one God, of his son now, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of the people of God. Having said that, we move through our little scan here of these chapters here. And if you go to chapter 44, 
chapter 44. Take you down to a very special verse here. You look at verse 6. Chapter 44 and verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. One of the things that's revealed here in this proclamation of God as we behold our God is the perpetuity of God. And by that we mean his everlasting nature as we alluded to a bit this morning. No beginning and no end. I am the first. When you're first in the food line out here, maybe for supper you set at the, you set at the right table. Okay, it probably won't be mine, but you know, that's the way it goes. You, you set at the right table, and you, there you are, first in line. I say, who's ahead of you? You say, you don't understand, I'm first. Nobody's ahead of you when you're first. Or I go up to one of you, you're last. You say, I'm last. Well, who's behind you? Don't you understand? Nobody's behind me. I'm last, you say. You say, Brother Norman has something against me. <laughs> and uh, so, so the perpetu- he, there's nobody before him, as we've already read, and there's nobody after him. The perpetuity of God always has existed, always is, and always will exist. Yet he reveals himself in more detail here. Look at verse 6 again. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, now that word Lord is capitals, Jehovah, and his Redeemer, the Lord, the Jehovah of hosts. Now, so to speak, we have two lords speaking. (laughs) The King and his Redeemer. That whoever God is, he's a plurality of one. It has three persons as we come to know now in the fullness of Scripture. Sometimes we call it the Trinity or the Triunity. And here's the verse to show you the plurality of this one God. He's the king, and yet he's the redeemer of the Lord of hosts. And he says, I am the first and the last. I share sometimes, years ago in New Jersey when we ministered there, a woman came out to some meetings and she was a Jehovah Witness who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. But she was seeking. She sat down with me after the meeting. She said, Randy, she said, if I I could be convinced from Scripture that Jesus is God, I would believe that. I would believe that. So I prayed. And I took her to this verse, and I had her read it. I said, Jehovah is claiming two persons here, and he claims, both of them claim, I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. Now I said, would you do something for me? Do you believe that? She said, well, yeah, I see that. I said, and I'd like you to do it with me. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, please. First, we'll look at verse 8. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty, the past, the present, the future, the perpetuity of God. He's eternal. But now look at verse 17, what John says. Verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And I had to read that verse. I said, Who's speaking? She said, I'm not sure. I said, Read verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. She said, Well, that has to be Jesus. (laughs) Dead and alive. 
and God opened her heart. She trusted Christ. I see it. He is Lord who died for me. And he is God. And he's the eternal one. I am the first and the last. Not just a great prophet. Not a miracle worker. Not just a counselor, a teacher, a fine example. Though he is that. He is the eternal God that John calls that eternal life. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, manifest in the Lord Jesus, uh, Jehovah himself. And so we, we see the perpetuity of God, the Lord and his Redeemer, the first and the last. <laughs> Israel's God is so great, his, his ways are past finding out, and they're turning from him, and he's drawing their heart back to him. So there's another proclamation, revelation of God, and we're not looking at every one. With that in mind, let's just progress here to chapter 45 as we continue our little scan of the great proclamation of the true God. Now there's a phrase as we go to chapter 5 that's been occurring in the other chapters, but it occurs a whole lot in chapter 45. For example, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 of chapter 45. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, uh, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. God claiming to be the only God, not just a God above God, just not the top God, just not the most powerful God, the only God. There's none else. L look at verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee in chains, they shall come over thee, over, and they shall fall down unto thee, and they shall make supplication to thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. Someday the enemies through Israel will see that there is no other God. See it again in verse 18. Verse 18, for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself, that formed the earth and made it, he hath established, he hath created it, not in vain he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Look at it again in verse 21, verse 21, tell ye and bring them near and let them take counsel together who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have I not the Lord? And there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look at the end of verse 22. I am God, and there is none else. We call this, for memory's help, the partisanship of God. The partisanship of God. He believes in only one. Today in politics, when we say somebody's partisan, we mean they only favor their own party. And they're not fair to the other party. So, so the thing is that you're supposed to be nonpartisan. Uh, you're supposed to be equal and give everybody the equal opportunity in that. And so nonpartisan means I favor more than one party. Partisan means one party only. I want to tell you, it's the partisanship of God. There's only one God. You, you have a world that will, to some degree, will let you talk about God if you'll acknowledge their God and their Allah and their saviors and their religion. They hate the word only. For when you use the word only, you're saying everybody else is not right, it's wrong. And now you're putting them down, not respecting them. And they call it divisive and bigoted and biased and so on. Partisan. And yet the truth is there's only one God. 
And, and so we, we just can't have share God with others. In fact, there's a verse we, I want to take you back to it. I'll come back to 45 in a minute. But go to chapter 42, back to Isaiah 42. And you look at verse 8, 42, 8. 42 and verse 8. 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven image. God will not share his glory and his praise. Uh, he's the only God. He's the only one that deserves it. There's some things you don't share. To use a crass example, man, you might share your food. You might even lend somebody your car. You wouldn't your wife. <laughs> you wouldn't share her. You, there are certain things that are sacred, that are unshareable. And so my glory will I not give to another. He's the only God. You know, when we get to the New Testament, is this just an Old Testament hard rule? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's partisan. The only reason it's true, because he's God. And salvation is of the Lord. There's only one God. Uh, Peter would preach that concerning salvation in Acts 4.12. He would say, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only name, the Lord Jesus Christ, saves. And so we come to this great truth of the partisanship of God that we as Christians say there's only one way. And the only reason we say that is because there's only one God. Uh, salvation is of the Lord, and he won't share that. And so we come to learn that this God is the only God. If you go to something else, it's just not you've got a lesser model. You don't have anything <laughs> uh, because he's the only God. Truths in Isaiah chapter 45. Also in this chapter 45, if you'll look at verse 6, another truth of God, of the proclamation of God, uh, looking, shall I say, at verse 7. Chapter 45 and verse 7, the Lord says this. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them, not bring forth, or let them bring forth salvation. Let the righteous spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the pots herd strive with the pots herds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work he hath no hands? Romans 9.20, we'll quote this as you know. Verse 10. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begattest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? You look at verse 12. I have made the earth, I have created man upon it. I've even, my hands have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. Here we have the prerogatives of God. In other words, he can do what he wants because he's the creator. The prerogatives of God. A God who we need not question, why are you doing something? We might not always understand it, but to accusingly question him of why, would he, you know, I don't think you know what you're doing. The prerogatives of God. And he has them on the basis of he made us. He's created us. It's what we could term creative rights. I made the earth. I created it and so on. The prerogatives of God is creative rights. You know, today we hear about human rights and there's a place for that. 
Now we're hearing about animal rights. Hang around and you'll hear about vegetable rights, you know. But, but there's such a thing that man has ignored, creative rights, that the one who makes gets to call the decisions and do what he wants. And by creator, creatorship, he's eligible for that. In fact, again, let's go back to that verse here in verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. By creating evil, he doesn't mean he, he instigates sin or he's the author of sin. That word evil means like bad circumstances. The ESV translates it, I create calamity. And that, that's kind of the general thought. That there, there, even in these days, God called the Assyrians to destroy northern Israel. He would later call the pagan Babylonian Empire to destroy his house in Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, an anti-Semitic king at that time anyway. And he would create evil or calamity for purposes that he knew to get his people hearts, hearts back and so on. So, and so the one who makes has certain rights, just like he used a father-mother example. You know, like a little child, what you think? Mommy, Daddy, why did you make me a boy? I didn't want to, I wanted to be a girl. You know, you don't have a say in the matter, you know. Uh, uh, you, you can't reply against a potter, you know, the pottery can't. And this arrogancy today of demand to question God and challenge God, uh, uh, it's based on he's the creator, the prerogatives of God. You know, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And it'll put things in perspective if we get rid of this accusing attitude to God. Why me? Why this? Why that? You know, I understand there's things we don't understand. We'll say, why? Help me understand, Lord. That's okay. But to accuse him and to, in bitterness and discouragement, challenge him, we're just a clay. And so we need that humble attitude. And if Israel has it, it will help him come back to know their God, that he has creative rights, the prerogatives of God. Let's go on with the proclamation of his God, beholding your God. It takes us to chapter 46. The opening verses here. Well, there's one I skip, and I shouldn't skip it. Look, look at the end of 45. Look, look at verse 22. Chapter 45 and verse 22. 45:22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Now we have the promise of God. What is the great promise of God? To make you rich? To give you the perfect job and perfect health? Not in the New Testament anyway. Salvation. Look unto me, not unto yourself, not unto psychology, not unto religion. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. It's an international invitation, not just for Israel. It is the message of the New Testament gospel of Christ, isn't it? Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What must I do to be saved? Simple answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, teaches Acts 16 and verse 31. The great promise of God to save us uh, from our sins, from judgment, from hell, from self, from Satan, and someday politically from an evil world and oppression. The, the great package of salvation that the Bible, and we alluded to briefly last night. It comes from looking unto God, not just for part of salvation, for the whole package of salvation. The promise of God, he will save those that look unto him. That's the type of God he is, not destroy them, but save them. 
The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them again. Luke 9, 56. Well, that then brings us to chapter 46 and the opening verses. And in God challenging their thinking of idolatry and the foolishness of it, we will see a revelation of God here of the parental care of God, the parental care of God for his people, that as a parent, he cares and he brings us along. Let's see how he presents us here, the parental care of God, in Isaiah 46 and verse 1. He says, Baal boweth down, Nebo stoopeth, their idols were upon the beast and upon the cattle. Your carriages were a heavy loading, they are a burden to the weary beast. He goes on to show that these pagans and Israel's adopting it would take these statues, these carved images, these good luck charms, and they'd go out to battle or something, and they'd have to load them on their wagons because they would kind of bless the war, bless the battle or so on. And, and, and you know what they did? They're so heavy, they slow the wagon down. They're a burden to the weary beast. And rather than making a trip maybe in 12 hours, it'll take them a day and a half. And rather than help them win, it'll hinder them from getting there. And so they actually slow down their progress in life. Verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Uh, these idols didn't make the load lighter, didn't make the trip faster. They couldn't even solve getting there, never mind winning the battle. That's the perversion of idolatry and looking to the things of the world. They'll tie you down. They'll weigh you down. They won't solve a thing in the end, and they'll even slow you down now. Such were the idols. And look what the Lord says in verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. We have a God that we don't have to carry him. You don't have to hang him around your neck. You don't have to support him on a mantle. Uh, uh, he carries you. He carries you from very birth. But how far does he carry you? We don't carry the true God. He carries us. Look at verse 4. Uh, you know, as I get older, I like this verse. And even to your old age, I am he. And even to the hoar hairs or gray hairs will I carry you. I have made, I will bear, even I will carry, and I will deliver you. To whom then will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? The incomparable God, there's nothing like him. Don't ever try to replicate him. You have this parental care of God that from the womb to the grave, from the cradle to the casket, unless the Lord comes first, he carries you and then his angels will carry you into heaven huh? to be with the Lord. And we have that teaching in the New Testament. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. Not only saves, but carries you through life. And in the burdens of old age, he's still there to carry. And so often we get discouraged. And yes, he's our savior from hell, but we turn to the world's, uh, all kind of their programs and that, he'll get me through mentally. Uh, God will get you through mentally. You know, thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. That's found in Isaiah 26 and verse 3. The parental care of God. He carries us. We don't have to carry him. That, that was the great sin of Uzzah who missed it when the oxen was carrying the ark you know, back to Jerusalem. And the ark was God's dwelling place and the oxen stumbled. It fell off and to keep the, it started to stumble and it started to tip. And to keep it on the ark, he put his hand out and touched the ark of God. Trying to symbolically anyway hold up God. And God struck him dead. 
We don't hold up God. We don't carry God. He carries us. The parental care of God. But moving here to chapter 47. Chapter 47. In the opening verses, in fact, throughout the whole chapter, you have the passion of God against sin. The passion of God against sin. There's a day coming, though God is long-suffering, does not usually judge sin instantly, because of his holy, righteous character, there will be judgment someday, the passion of God against unholiness and sin. And he's reminding here a prophecy against Babylon here, whom God would use to destroy southern Israel, known as Judah, under Nebuchadnezzar. And God chose him to do that. He created calamity or evil to, to judge his people. But Babylon and doing it went far beyond. It just didn't just take them captive. They tortured them. They went far further than God ever wanted to in their arrogancy and their cruelty. And they sinned against God himself. And so this prophecy comes down to the Babylon. You look at chapter 47 and verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind mill, and cover thy locks, make bare the leg, and cover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Set thou silent, and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the Lady of the Kingdoms. Now look at verse 6. I was wroth with my people, speaking of Israel. I have polluted my inheritance and given them into thine hand. God let Babylon conquer Judah. But the end of verse 6. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou verily heavily laid thy yoke. You went far beyond what I ever wanted you to do. And you're going to come to an end. God's passion, his holy passion against sin. You know, we need to remember that today as we behold our God. During the day of grace, you could probably go out there and spit in the sky at God. You won't drop dead with a heart attack. But there's a day of judgment coming. Not that you would do that. He says in Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. The silence of God. No instant judgment. And we mistake that instant, no instant judgment for approval he says, these things hast thou done, and I kept silent, and thou thoughtest, I was altogether such a one as thyself. Because the silence of God, you thought, he doesn't care, it's no big deal, You're just like us. Then he says in Psalm 51, verse 22, now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I come and tear you to pieces, and there be none left. There's a day of judgment coming, because he has passion against sin if we're not saved. You know? And so Peter takes up this concept, in 2 Peter 3, 9, speaking of the judgment of God, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He will judge, but he holds off in his long-suffering. But the day of judgment will come. It's the whole book of Revelation. The great day of his wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? Revelation 6, 17. The crushing of this world and of sinners into the lake of fire and all these details in Revelation. And so we have to understand in our God that though he has long suffering, he has passion against sin and eventually will weigh the scales, so to speak, in the sense of judging what is meat and judge the sinner that is not saved. The passion of God against sin. 
And then you go to chapter 48. Last chapter we're looking at in the proclamation of God in this section. Just go down to verse 9. Isaiah 48 and verse 9. For my name's sake will I defer my anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Speaking of God's people, you have the purifying of God. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He brought Israel through horrible circumstances, not to completely cut them off forever, to purify them, to refine them, to to get the uh, dross and impurities out. And so we have the purifying of God with his people. Uh, Because he loves us, he has to correct us, not to destroy us, but to refine us. Brother Joe was speaking of the testings of God this morning. And in 1 Peter 1, 7, Christians are told that the trial, the test of your faith, being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found on the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. When he appears, all these tests of death and disappointment and denial and, and unfairness that we've experienced not only in the world but in the church, and we stay faithful to him by his grace, it's worth more than fine gold <laughs> at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We have the, the, the purifying of God with his people. Much more could be said on that. We'll close with the last one that we want to bring out here in chapter 48. If you go down to verse 19. Or verse 18. And make it 17, why not? <laughs> 48, 17. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, and leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. O thou that hast hearkened to my commandments, then had thy, O that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. And he concludes in verse 22, There is no peace, saith my God, unto the wicked. If we come to God in his terms, and his way, your peace would be like a river. It's where the song comes from, peace like a river, you know. And we have the peace of God for the righteous. There is no peace for the wicked. But you have a God that when you come on his terms, he's a God of peace. We could all quote that concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus, couldn't we? Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not under his wrath. A God of peace that wants to give that peace like a river. Let's just close by the reading of one verse and we're done. Let's go to the New Testament, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the God of peace. Wonderful verse here. For some reason, I don't hear it a lot. It's probably my fault, but I, when it comes to my attention, I enjoy it. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, and look at this in verse 16. Verse 16. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always. By all means, the Lord be with you all. The Lord of peace give you peace always, by all means, <laughs> or by all means. A God who's looking for peace, uh, not only with God, but the peace of God. He's not of God out to hurt you. A God to bring you with a mind of peace through things. The God of peace for the righteous. But for the wicked, 
There is no peace, saith my God, that are wicked. And so we see the revelation of the righteous character and person of God. Well, why would we go anywhere else? We begin to understand this God fulfilled in the gospel and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask God to bless his word. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank thee for this revelation in thy word, revealing thy very self. We've come to know thee now, full of grace, in all the fullness uh, through the blessed Son of God, the Lord Jesus. The one who judgment fell on him in thy passion for sin so we could be saved. It didn't fall on us. And now there's peace for us. Peace like a river. Floods our soul. Peace with thee. And Father, thou hast purified. And we've come to see uh, that there's only one God. And to, to rest in these things. To understand these things. To encourage thy dear saints here. To encourage them and to help them encourage others as we've been hearing. To pass it on. Just ask thy blessing on the word in a way we can't work in our heart as we commit it in the name for the edification of the church and above all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it. Amen.